the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We're talking about Slow Church today, not just the book, but the entire notion. This is the the polar opposite of this uh, fast approach that we've taken to rapid growth that certainly does a lot in terms of of sort of the quick um, flash in the pan, uh, brilliant moment uh, of success. But then, of course, leaves many questions pertaining to the sustainability of not just one's faith, but frankly, of the community, of the body of believers. And as we're learning from our guest today, co-author Chris Smith, um, quite frankly, this, this rapid fast, sort of the, uh, the franchise approach to Christianity, doesn't do a lot in terms of um, spiritual depth of individuals, let alone the sustainability of the church. And maybe therein lies the problem that we're learning that the, the rapid results today are, in fact, at the expense of long-term sustainability. Yes, definitely, Craig. I mean, we see that, like you were saying earlier, that church plants uh, tend to have a lifespan of maybe a couple years. And also, I think part of the issue, questions of sustainability, um, one of the questions that doesn't get looked at so much uh, is is the ways in which uh, churches move uh, from one neighborhood uh, to another um, and what the what the impact might be of that sort of uh transition uh, on the neighborhoods um, that are left. I mean, I live in an urban neighborhood here in Indianapolis, and we've kind of seen the effects, the sort of vacuum that's left uh, when a church uh, or any other institution of business, uh, but but especially in this case in churches, um, when they move out of a neighborhood. Um, And and it, it can be it can be uh, pretty powerful, and it's something that churches don't think about a lot about uh, what what has happened uh, in the places that they leave behind. Mm. So that loss of commitment to a neighborhood, and oftentimes there's a disaster left behind because then what might have been uh, the only beacon of hope in a particular community, and this certainly has been very true in a lot of inner cities, um, sure. it completely uh, collapses, doesn't it? Oh, yes. Yes, definitely. Definitely. It was, it's interesting. Our church, the church I'm part of, Anglo Christian Church here in, Indiana, in the near, urban near east side of Indianapolis, uh, we're 118 years old, uh, but we've basically been in the same place uh, for for all of that history. Um, and uh, at one point, uh, at kind of a low point in the size of our congregation, the history of our congregation, uh, we ha- were faced with the decision, do we stay in this neighborhood or do we move out uh, to the suburbs where a lot of our members are? And the leaders of the church decided at that point that it was very important for us to stay. And basically for the last 25 years or so since that decision, we've been on a journey of trying to, to understand what it means for us to be a church in this place since we made a very intentional decision to stay here. A lot of times churches will move because they feel overwhelmed by many of the problems that are facing a neighborhood and quite frankly maybe feel ill-equipped to be able to ascertain what those problems are and to best address them. Uh, but, but, you know, I'm, I'm reminded of what we've seen in the recent past 
passing of Robin Williams, who is, um, because of his connection to the San Francisco Bay Area, has been sure. quite a, an ongoing topic here of the last couple of weeks. Uh, some folks might have seen um, comments made uh, the other night by David Letterman, um, who um, knew Robin early on in his career, and uh, Mr. Williams had been a guest on the Letterman show apparently about 50 times down through uh, the, the years, and at the end of his very emotional moving tribute to him, uh, had made a remark about, well, if he'd only knew about how much pain Robin was in, and it dawns on me that we in the church maybe are guilty often of the same thing, that we are too busy and moving too fast to notice when others around us are hurting, the very ones that God would call upon us to bring healing to or hope to or his gospel to, and maybe, you know, what uh, what was remarked by David Letterman last night regarding Robin Williams is indicative of a place where a lot of us in the church are at today. We're just moving too fast to notice those around us that are really hurting. Oh, no doubt. No doubt. I think you're, you're definitely hitting on something there, Craig. Um, that I mean, one of the things that's been fascinating to us is that, I mean, you just look at, you talk, we talked about earlier, a little bit earlier about the franchising uh, aspect of it, and you look at a McDonald's or you look at a Starbucks or a Home Depot or whatever, and those are those sorts of institutions look pretty much the same whether you're in San Francisco or San Antonio or wherever else. Um, and I think that a lot of times uh, churches can be that way. They can look and feel pretty much the same wherever wherever they are. And, they, and churches have kind of become almost um, uh, unattentive to uh, to the places uh, where they exist. Um, and again, that's part of the, the sort of fragmentation. Uh, churches have come to see themselves as kind of par- part of spiritual life, uh, not necessarily engaged in the life of the communities in which they exist. Um, and I, I think that that's, I think it's in that sort of engagement with the communities where we exist, where the, the wisdom of the gospel is, uh, and the, the call to to be peacemakers and all those other sorts of things that, that we're called to in Christ. Uh, those, that's where that witness is borne out uh, in, in engagement with, with our neighbors. Um, so I think you're absolutely right that, that we, there are many ways that we've become unaware of the, the pain and suffering around us. And, you know, even closer to home, I mean, again, that, that rush means that there's a risk of well-being to family and our own mental health, our own spiritual well-being, because we're not taking the time uh, to go deep enough because uh, we're just not programmed that way. Oh, yeah, sure, absolutely. I mean, I think that I don't, don't want to overstep here, but, but it's interesting to me that there's a correlation uh, between our continuing to move faster and faster and and the rise in uh, mental illness, for instance. Um, I mean, I'm not saying necessarily that they're connected, but it's interesting that uh, that they seem to uh, follow very similar uh, curves. Um, is a lot of this also tied into not just a desire to do things faster and more instantaneous, but also coupled with this indicative of a lack of maturity that is maybe as a as a watchword, um, tremendously impatient and a culture where on an increasing basis we wish to avoid not only work but any pain. I mean, it used to be, you know, a, a good hard day's worth of labor mm-hmm. where you came home with tired muscles and, and complete 
completely beat. That was you had a sense of satisfaction and reward about that. And today it's almost as if that has shunned. And so if we're not willing to to exercise our physical muscles and experience a little bit of you know stretching pain in the experience, um, I wonder if that's indicative of of the same thing when it comes to not willing being willing to spirit to exercise our spiritual muscles that we're afraid of avoiding pain in any aspect of life. Oh yeah, absolutely. I, I think that that's one of the things that we talk about in the book that I mean the way of Jesus uh, is the the way of compassion. I mean just the incarnation itself of Jesus coming to earth uh, was an act of compassion. Jesus entered into all the pain and suffering and the joys of course too, but but the pain and suffering of the human experience and that's what we're called to do. Uh, with one another in our church congregations and with our neighbors. And I think that what we're seeing, I talked a little bit before about kind of the history of industrialization and how we've become more and more uh, impatient and have more greater and greater expectations for speed. But one of the other effects of it is, like you were saying, that it, it conditions us to, to want to avoid work and suffering. We look at the rise of the, in the mid-20th century, the rise of the quote-unquote labor-saving device. Uh, and that's, a wonder, uh, that's not necessarily a bad thing. I'm not saying that we should not use any sort of electrical gadget or whatever. Uh, but, but we do need to be aware of what, what the cost of that is and what, if we're saving labor, to what end are we saving labor? Um, and, and the effect of that, I believe, is exactly what you were describing, that we, it, we're, we are having greater and greater difficulty entering into the, the pains and sufferings of others because we've been conditioned to avoid pain and suffering at all costs. And, of course, the irony is that pain and suffering also translates into notions of persecution. Um, and, you know, somehow the notion that we as the church in America are uniquely um, given a pass on the idea of pain and suffering or persecution, when the Scripture, of course, doesn't say that at all. And um, there is a dynamic that speaks quite heavily to uh, that lack of being willing to to suffer for his name's sake, as Chris, Scripture calls us to, indicative, too, of this notion of kind of being the uh, uh, the church that's what's the old saying 10 miles wide and an inch deep right no no absolutely absolutely i mean again i don't think that we should necessarily seek out persecution but i mean i think that there are ways that our desires for comfort uh uh kind of compromises our willingness to to speak the truth in in difficult situations uh whether that's in the public square or in our congregations um and i think that has that has uh, ramifications our conversation today with Chris Smith. He is co-author of a new book called Slow Church, Cultivating Community in the Patient Way of Jesus. If you are someone who is a uh, student of uh, everything that is fast and rapid and you wish to overemphasize a, a quality, quantity rather over quality, this is probably not a book for you. If, on the other hand, you're somebody who would rather not go quicker in your relationship with God but go deeper, then this indeed can be a book that can be a tremendous eye-opener opener, not only for your own relationship with Christ, but at the family level and at the community level. The book again, Slow Church, Cultivating Community in the Patient Way of Jesus, newly published by InterVarsity Press. You'll find it at bookstores around the Bay Area, not in the rapid church growth section, though, I might add. <laughs> and of course, on Amazon.com. And our thanks to co-author Chris Smith for being with us on this edition of Lifeline. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. 
Uh, over the course of conversation with a colleague of mine, he was talking about a series of photographs, a uh, collage really, floating about on Facebook. One side to the left depicts photographs of the likes of Albert Einstein, Carl Sandburg, Abraham Lincoln, Thomas Jefferson, Arturo Toscanini, a good Irish name for you. And on the left, on the left, a photograph of Snooky from Jersey Shore. By the way, if you don't know who that is, congratulate yourself. The caption below this collage of photograph reads, If you know the person on the right, but none on the left, you might be what's wrong with America. And that, I think, is an ideal introduction to my next guest on the program tonight. He is the author of a number of best-selling books, including Intellectual Morons and A Conservative History of the American Left. His latest book is entitled Blue Collar Intellectuals, When the Enlightened and the Everyman Elevated America. We're joined tonight by Daniel Flynn. Uh, Daniel, as we mentioned, in addition to being a best-selling author, is also a columnist for HumanEvents.com and a blogger at FlynnFiles.com. And Daniel, thanks so much for being with us on the program tonight. Thank you for having me. I thought uh, that the story of that collage of photographs, I don't know what, but maybe you've seen them, in, in many ways kind of defines exactly what has happened in this slow uh, but steady slide into the abyss in America today, uh, where even as we've tried to search for some sort of a connection between uh, the intellectuals and, and the so-called inspiration for the Occupy Wall Street movement, there is scant little evidence of same. Yeah, I, I haven't seen those pictures, but you, you did what a good radio host will do, which is to create a visual with, with your words. <laughs> so I, I feel like I've, I've seen those pictures, and I, I've certainly seen Snooki and, and those other characters as well. But that's, that's kind of where we're at um, as, as a culture, where you know, it, it used to be the case um, around the mid-century mark that the United States of America, you know, the people of the United States of America were the best, you know, the most well-educated people in the history of the world. You had University of the Air-style radio programs, the Book of the Month Club, great books, discussion groups, meeting in YMCAs and union halls around the country. Um, You don't see that very much today. And I think part of the reason is that the everyman is, you know, rather than, than reaching for something higher, they're kind of dragging their arms ever lower, you know, for, for Snooky and the situation and all that kind of thing. Um, but on the other side of the coin, uh, you don't have intellectuals as eager to engage the everyman. Um, and we, we once had intellectuals, you know, the blue car intellectuals that I write about, who spoke not just to other eggheads, but we're, we're very um, enthusiastic about opening up a conversation to all comers. And I think the, the, the issue we have today, sure, part of it's, uh, you know, Joe Sixpack not being, being um, as, as intellectually curious as he once was, but the other part of it is that you have, um, uh, you know, academics who are, who are operating in, in an intellectual ghetto. And let's face it, there needs to be some source of stimulation uh, to encourage that intellectual curiosity. And I think, as you aptly point out uh, throughout your new book, Blue Collar Intellectuals, I mean, part of this we can lay uh, squarely at the feet of, you know, reality shows, which are anything but, uh, you know, video games is entertainment. Uh, Facebook is our singular means by which we, we stay socially connected. I imagine what a shock it would be for our great-great-grandparents who communicated either in person, uh, faccia a faccia, as we would say in Italian, or by the 
old-fashioned method of, of handwriting letters, and now all of a sudden it's been reduced down to anything that you can get in 140 characters uh, on on Twitter, and this all of a sudden has now been sub, the, the substitute uh, for social interaction. I mean, I, I, I think we can point at a number of levels of the steady decline, if not outright decay, uh, of not only our, our social interaction skills, but our, our intellectual skills as well. Yeah, definitely. And, I, you know, I, I was out in your neck of the woods researching this book. And something that you said really brought to mind um, some of my research in the archives, looking at people like Eric Hoffer at the Hoover Institution or Mil- Milton Freeman and Hoffer having some papers also at the San Francisco Public Library. And when you, when you research archives of people who lived, you know, 50, 100 years ago, you, you grasp how um, even just normal people, how, how good they were at writing. And they wrote letters. They wrote long letters to people. And I, I wonder what's going to happen 50 or 100 years from now uh, when people look at our writing. I don't know if they're going to be saving Twitter tweets or they're going to be saving text messages, but I shudder to think at, at uh, how they will um, look at us. Uh, from the way we write, because we're not, we're not really impressing people with that. Well, and you point out in the book, and I, I saw this, and, and there was a resounding knee-slapping uh, amen, brother, when I when I read this line inside of the book, uh, this notion that, you know, for the longest time we used to decry uh, the kind of trash that showed up at the grocery store uh, checkout line, you know, which was everything from, uh, you know, the world, world's weird news to uh, the National Enquirer, et cetera, et cetera. Now, all of a sudden today, it is hard to uh, differentiate between uh, what you see at the grocery checkout stand and what you see at the newsstand these days, and 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 even you know even with the internet and the ability of it to to bring to us such a vast knowledge of the, the collected uh, you know awareness and understanding of the world uh, right there at the fingertips of the keyboard, uh, it, it seems as if even so-called legitimate news sites. Uh, can't deal somehow with the abstraction to the outright uh, obsession of things like, you know, focusing on no talent, no buddies like a Kim Kardashian. Uh, all of this, sure. I think, just, you know, indicative, as you pointed out, you know, when the newsstand is no different than the checkout line at the grocery store, um, you know, it, it might be subtle, but I think it's a very profound subtly, uh, subtlety as to what it says about who we have become as a nation. Yeah, I mean, the book is really about a time when smart looked for you and i think what you have today is you know you you can still look for, you can still find smart if you look hard enough but it's smart's not really looking for you in other words there's sort of an invasive stupidity there is you know i i, I travel a lot in in writing books and i get into the back of a cab and all of a sudden i don't know when this started but there's a tv that i can't turn off in the back of a cab you sit in an airport waiting room there's no escape from uh, you know the, the CNN International blaring in the in the background. You can't find a quiet corner to read. Even when you get on the subway, it used to be if you, you'd notice. You know when you ride the subway, people would be reading. They'd be reading newspapers and magazines and books. And now, I mean, there's still some people who are reading, but most of the time, people are texting. They're playing a video game. They're doing something with an electronic gadget. And I can't help but think from observing all this, how we spend, you know, how we spend our leisure time, it's largely become a waste of time. And, you know, far be it for me to lecture someone, hey, you have to use your time in, in the way that I want you to use your time. I'm, that's not what I'm trying to do. But I, I can't help but thinking that the way we use our leisure time is really affecting us 
in a negative way as, as a country. You're right. And as you point out, you know, for, for, the, for the working man, the blue collar guy that worked in industry uh, back in the 1930s and 40s, say, or who had migrated to states like California during the Dust Bowl uh, period in Oklahoma, um, you know, by, by no stretch of the imagination where these edu- educated people are necessarily highbrow or intellectuals. And yet, as you say, there was enough in popular, popular culture and enough influence by the so-called intellectuals that went looking for the common man or, or the blue-collar guy to help try and elevate him. I mean, oh my goodness, it, it's not that many years ago that things like, you know, Campbell's Playhouse would present uh, Shakespearean plays in their entirety uh, over the course of several evenings or the Firestein Theater with, with great orchestras and great opera. And this would be prime-time television, 8 o'clock at night on a Wednesday evening and the entire family sat down and watched this and learned and they got exposed to some culture to some culture and and they had a little bit of you know the, the intellectual exercise going on all of that has disappeared sure and you know i think about the, the first um blue collar intellectual that i write about a guy named will durant um and i you know one of the reasons why I think these blue-collar intellectuals had and you know, felt an obligation to, to engage the everyman. It's because they came from um, you know, the, the mass of, of, uh, of Americans that were not at the top, but were you know, somewhere in the scrum there. And Will Durant, I mean, this is an amazing Only in America story, his father was illiterate. I mean, Will Durant wrote the best-selling philosophy book in the 20th century, The Story of Philosophy. Uh, outsold Charles Lindbergh's autobiography after he, he flew over the Atlantic. I mean, that's how much people were eager to read his book. Um, Will Durant, along with Ariel Durant, his wife, wrote some of you know books that were perennially on the bestseller list, the hist- you know, basic, A History of the World, which he called The Story of Civilization, 11-volume set uh, over the course of 45 years from the 1920s all the way up through the 1970s. His dad couldn't speak a lick of English. He had 10 kids, and he worked in a factory. And when we talk about the American dream, we're so transfixed on the monetary angle. And certainly there are these rags-to-riches Horatio Alger stories. But the striver culture that I'm talking about in blue-collar intellectuals also had to do with uh, an educational betterment. And I think the story of a guy like Will Durant uh, exemplified that, and I think the fact that we don't see that as much anymore. Well, and we've, um, we've pointed, we've, we've dumbed down democracy in, in, in every sense of the word, and unfortunately, uh, education, whether we're talking about uh, Main Street, K-12, through uh, on up to even the higher levels of education, has seen this huge paradigm shift from teaching people how to think, presenting the facts, and then allowing them to draw their own conclusions, to the easy way out, simply what to think, where we can regurgitate a couple of details here and there that tends to sort of just make up a a particular political opinion uh, or political thrust and end of story. And and this, I think, is demonstrating, as uh, Daniel Flynn points out in his book, the danger of what's happening uh, when we're no longer enlightened, when we're no longer capable of thinking for ourselves. And, you know, we've had some examples in not too far distant history uh, of what happens when uh, mankind stops thinking for itself and relies on someone else or or some other body to think for it and the dangers that all of that brings about. We're talking today about his new book, Blue Collar Intellectuals, When the Enlightened and the Everyman Elevated America. Uh, those days are not that far ago, and I think things can be done to, to revive those days and, and to bring it back. Uh, but it's going to take an awful lot of work 
on all of our behalfs. We're going to take a time out, come back to more of our conversation. Um, and as we do so, the phone lines are open for thoughts and comments. Toll free at 888-367-5329-888-F-O-R-K-F-A-X. In particular, are there some intellectual types out there that would agree? My goodness, what's happened? That we, we've dumbed down society and we've extracted out of popular culture Anything that gives a sense of uh, of refinement to it, uh, of culture or class to it, where pop culture today, if you spend any time on the Internet or watching MTV or anything that masquerades as, as entertainment on many cable television stations today, uh, it's become an absolute wasteland. It was, was not always like this. So if we keep that in mind, then the question is, what do we do to revive it so we can get America back on track? Big equation here at a lot of levels, to be sure. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We're talking with author Daniel Flynn. A look at blue-collar intellectuals when the enlightened and the everyman elevated America. And we're talking about uh, what has become this slow slide down into the abyss. And as you point out in the book, Daniel, as much as we'd like to um, say, gee, what's wrong with America? Where did we go wrong? There's a degree to which the intellectuals have ultimately failed the culture. They no longer engage the culture the way we once did. Um, you mentioned my friend Milton Freeman, who had been a guest on this program many, many times uh, before his passing, and how much he liked to engage the common man. At what point do you think, where, where do we see the distinction when that ceased to be the case? Well, I, I think with a guy like Friedman, he has a very interesting career because the first half of it is essentially engaging other intellectuals. And then at a certain point, he, he goes as far as he's going to go within academia, and he decides to write Capitalism and Freedom, which is for a, a lay audience and not for an academic audience. He decides to write this Newsweek column, which he writes for 18 years, uh, every three weeks. The Free to Choose documentary, he was very skeptical of that because he thought anyone who could be convinced by a uh, half-an-hour broadcast on television would just be reconverted to the opposite position the next time uh, another half-hour program came about, you know, advocating the opposite position. So he, he was skeptical of some of these things, but he thought that it was his obligation as an economist to engage the, the educated um, layperson. I think, uh, and, and Friedman was obviously doing this in, into, the, into the 1990s and, and really up until his death just a few years ago. There are still people that you see doing this. I mean, that one one guy who, you know, I don't necessarily agree with, with what he does, but I think Ken Burns is someone who you might call a blue-collar intellectual. I mean, he, he's someone who people think he's an historian. He's not. He's some guy with a history degree, just like me. You know, he's a history degree from a, from a college, and he decided to make documentaries. And, boy, that's a tough thing to make history come alive, to, to, to make the dead walk again, essentially. And that's that's what he does with some of his documentaries, and I, I really admire that. Um, I, I may not admire some of his views, but I admire people who at least make the effort to, um, to reach the common man. And I don't think that we see that too much um, with academia, with people who are sort of off in their insular world talking amongst themselves. I think they would be better served if they talked to, um, you know, if they got out of their intellectual ghettos and talked to the everyman. And I think the everyman would be better served as well. They, boy, it would be, you know, it would be a win-win for everyone. A big part of this is, is the kind of the isolation into the ivory tower, so to speak. But then to something else that I made reference uh, to Daniel before the break, and that is what I've identified as a major shift where at one time uh, the, the principal component 
um, in education was to teach students, whether we're talking about K through 12 or at the higher degree levels, how to think. Yes, certainly there were attempts at influencing. There was no doubt about that. I, I think that we can see, you know, a, a, an agenda of one sort or another woven through lots of periods uh, of history, certainly in, in 20th and 21st century history, to be sure. But all of a sudden, we, we saw this major shift in education, particularly in the late 50s and early 1960s, where it was no longer about teaching the students what to think, giving them the tools so they could draw their own conclusions, but rather we kind of skipped over that process. Process, and now we just gave them what to think. We went from how to think to what to think. Yeah, well, one of the, um, the blue-collar intellectuals that I write about is Mortimer Adler, and he was really the evangelist behind the Great Books movement. And one of the reasons why um, Adler was so successful with, with the Great Books and selling them is because there was a void that the, the you know, Harvard and, and some of the other leading institutions really stopped teaching um, those cultural common denominators, those great books of the Western world. So this was that, like when they, they published, uh, in fact, I've got a whole set at home, like the Harvard Classics? Strangely enough, Charles Eliot, who was the guy behind the Harvard Classics, one of the reasons that was successful as well is because Eliot had basically created that void by getting rid of the classics and the curriculum at Harvard. So there's an irony there. <laughs> and with, with, with a guy like uh, Adler, whose background is really amazing in the sense that He's probably the only Ivy League Ph.D. I know who had not gotten a high school diploma nor a college diploma before getting his Ph.D. But the amazing thing for me is not really his academic accomplishments, but his accomplishments as a salesman in the sense that you can, you can go door-to-door and sell someone a vacuum cleaner. You can go door-to-door and, and sell someone flatware. But the idea of going door-to-door and selling everyday Americans a million sets of the 54-volume great, uh, great books of the Western world, that to me is absolutely amazing. And Mortimer Adler helped do that at mid-century in America. And his big point, here's his big point to get to your question. His big point was, you know, if you just have a monarchy, if you just have one king, um, you know, there's that phrase, the education fit for a king. And you, all you have to be concerned about is one guy's education and your government's fine. But what happens when your king is essentially 311 million people? <laughs> you have to, you know, that, that flaw, that idea, the education fit for a king. You've got to apply that to 311 million people. And if you don't concern yourself with everyone's education, you're going to have uh, a citizenry that's not only not fit to govern the country, but they're really not fit to govern their own souls. And that's the problem as Adler saw it, and that's why he was such an enthusiast of, of Aristotle and Plato and Shakespeare and all of those great books that used to be the cultural common denominators and now often are, are left out of the curriculum entirely. Well, and let's face it, we, we can just simply sit down and look at the headline news today and we see the results of this. You know, what happens? Well, you end up with a, a, a monetary, a moral, a social, and a spiritual deficit at every level. Uh, you know, in, in economic terms, that's what leads to a six $16.4 trillion deficit that nobody can quite explain. Uh, in, in moral terms or spiritual terms, this is what leads to, to people acting out in unbelievable ways, kind of the personification of, of man's ultimate you know, cruelty to man, and, and, and no sense of guidelines or respect for others, for life, for any of it. So I, I think we're, also, we're seeing the price added, of it. Yeah, and, and can I add, in cultural terms, 
um, you know, we just um, we just went through 2011, and this is the first year in the history of Hollywood. Just just to throw something out there that I think every listener can relate to, the first time in the history of Hollywood that the top ten best-selling movies at the box office in a year were all either remakes, sequels, or based on old comic book characters mm. 50 or 60 years ago. In other words, there's a complete dearth of originality in the entertainment that we have, in the sense that, that we're, you know, we're watching The Fast and the Furious Part 5 and you know, The Hangover Part 2, and that's what people are buying. Um, and it's, to me, it just speaks to uh, the fact that as a culture, we're living off the fumes of an America from 50, 60 years ago. And you could probably say the same thing economically and, 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 and translate that into other areas beyond the culture as well. I, I think that, you know, as much as uh, we probably don't want to use uh, what's selling at the box office as a um, measuring stick, as a yardstick of what's going on in, in popular culture and society today, I think it's oftentimes a very accurate one. And you're right. I mean, there seems to be this this major creative deficit going on, and then where what things that too seem to strike a chord are, are rehashing of films that sometimes have their genesis going back 20, 30, 40 years or more. We're going to take a brief time out. When we come back, I want to talk too about what seems to be the disappearance of of the warning system, the early warning system that America had in place. Now, to be sure, thank goodness there are people like Daniel Flynn and others that are trying to to fill the gap. But whatever happened to the Aldous Huxleys of the world? And the Ray Bradburys and the the Orwells of the world who wrote books warning of what happens to a society when you forfeit your intellectual rights, your moral rights, your spiritual rights, your right of self-governance. We'll get back to more of our conversation. A look at blue-collar intellectuals when the enlightened and the everyman elevated America. Back to our conversation with best-selling author Daniel Flynn as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Back to our conversation. Best-selling author Daniel Flynn, the book Blue Collar Intellectuals. By the way, you can get a copy of the book at uh, bookstores. And, of course, information, too, on his daily blog at flynnfiles.com. Daniel, what of the notion that we've also attended to lost kind of the early warning system? You know, I, I grew up on the, the, the writings of the likes of Aldous Huxley's Brave New World, uh, Ray Bradbury's Fahrenheit 451. I mean, everybody remembers him for his work on Star Trek, and yet it, the, the the prolific writing that he did, the warning uh, that's contained in Fahrenheit 451, George Orwell's 1984. I mean, so many aspects of any of these three books and others like them that, that have served as kind of the early warning warning sign that it seems as if a lot of that has kind of disappeared today we 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 live all today in the moment and we don't think much about tomorrow do we well there's a interesting tidbit in my book relating to both 1984 and fahrenheit 451 there was a a a prep school in my home state of massachusetts they charged forty thousand dollars a year for students to attend and a couple years ago they decided to get rid of all of their books in their library (laughs) the headmaster said People are acting like this is, you know, 1984. It's not. And I thought, you know, it's not just 1984. It's Fahrenheit 451. And instead of spending the money on books, they decided to spend um, $50,000 or more than $50,000 revamping the library, adding three flat screen televisions to what once was a library and a cappuccino machine. (laughs) So that's the brave new world. To sort of complete your trifecta there that, that we're entering into. I think of a guy like Bradbury, and, uh, you know, when he was a kid, he, he had a lot going against him when he was growing up in L.A. He was, he was uh, extremely poor, so poor that 
he had to sleep in the same bed with his brother up until the time he was an adult. It was a pull-out couch in their living room. And uh, the other thing he had going against him was he was like a nerd nerd. He used to corner Marlena Dietrich and Clark Gable and, and Judy Garland for autographs on his roller skates around uh, Hollywood. He was really a terror. The one thing he had going for him is that he was super smart, Ray Bradbury. And so when it came time to go to college, he, he couldn't go. He, in the Depression, you know, he didn't have, they didn't have any money. And so what he did instead was... He went to the public library for three days a week, and he read, and he read, and he read. And he did this for four years, three days a week, in, in lieu of going to college. And I think that a guy like Bradbury, he had it right. In other words, uh, today, these days, people go to college, and all they care about is that piece of paper at the end of four years. They could care less about the, the, the education that comes in between. Bradbury, all he cared about was the education. He could have cared less about that piece of paper. And I think his life gives us a little bit of a lesson to see how our priorities are a little bit screwed up today, where people go to college for the credentialism, for, for job training, but they don't go for the learning. Well, they, I mean, they go and they go and they go in order to get the paper, to get the degree, to get earn a higher salary so they can keep up with the Joneses. And yet there's very little... And there are certainly always exceptions to this rule, but there there is not as much emphasis by any means as there used to be about getting your degree and then going out and doing something to change the world. That's right, and, and you know I'm, I'm not I don't want to make this into a, a big tirade against higher education, but there are uh, you know the, the blue collar intellectuals that I write about. I mean, there's a guy like uh, Milton Friedman who obviously had a huge benefit from being at the University of Chicago, their economics department. But there's someone like Eric Hoffer who, in San Francisco, was by day loading uh, you know cargo off the docks of ships uh, in, in, in San Francisco. He, he was Bay. a longshoreman, wasn't he? Was that wasn't he a longshoreman? He was a longshoreman, and the, the point here is that he never went to school for a day in his life, and yet, you know, by day he's doing this longshoreman work, and by night in his off hours, he's writing what became The True Believer, which really became one of the best books in the 20th century to understand in the 20th century. And, um, you know, because of the fact that there was this American general in stationed France who read his book in 1951 and then came back to the United States and became president, he was elected president the next year, we're talking about Dwight Eisenhower, who loved Hoffer's book, and because everyone wants to read what, what the president's reading, Hoffer became a big celebrity, and all of a sudden, the intellectual that all of America wants to consult is a guy who's never been to school a day in his life. Why do you think, then, we've seen this shift at the intellectual level, where the desire to foster an educated and cultured society just seems to have fallen by the wayside? Boy, when you, when you hear intellectuals talk, they speak in a jargon that I don't even think they understand. Uh, they write books that nobody reads. They speak at conferences that nobody attends. It's, it's almost as if they're trying to convey their apartness from the rest of the society. They're not really trying to convey any substantive idea, per se, but they're trying to convey how they're in this educated clique, how they're, you know, they're kind of above everyone else. And to me, I mean, that may be cathartic. It may make them feel good, but I don't know what it, what it does. You know, it does, certainly doesn't do anything for society. And, you know, that's part of the reason I wrote this book, Blue Collar Intellectuals, because here are intellectuals who engaged the public and who spoke to the public and, you know, who may have had their own intellectual work with, you know, with, with involving strictly other intellectuals, but who at least made an effort to uplift um, the masses from which they sprang. And I think nowadays, because a lot of the people who are in academia um, certainly don't come from that 
the, the kind of uh, place that Ray Bradbury or an Eric Coffer came from, they have absolutely no interest of, uh, of, of uh, taking that on. So and rather than having kind of come up through the system, so to speak, uh, they, they began as a member of the elite. That's all that they've known. And so they, they kind of hover in that rarefied air with no interest whatsoever of their feet ever touching ground. Yeah, I think that's a big part of it. And, I, you know, look, I'm married to an academic, so I don't want to bash them too much or else I get kicked out of my house. You'll be sleeping with a dog tonight otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, 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 you know, there was something great going on in America for much of the last century um, where you had these guys like Will, Will and Ariel Durant, Ray Bradbury, and, and, and Milton Friedman, and, and, uh, and, and, you know, all the people that I write about who were making an effort to engage the everyman. And, of course, that's kind of what talk radio does. But you don't see that as much uh, from, from academics or scholars or intellectuals anymore. And that's kind of why I wrote the book, is hoping to jumpstart that again. How do we do that, then? A closing thought from me, if we can, Daniel, in a minute or so that we have left. How do we get it jumpstarted once again? Well, I think in everyone in their own life, you know, I don't, I don't think this is the type of book that, that people are going to read and say, oh, well, let's pass this piece of legislation or, aha, you know, this is what we do to make everything right. Um, it's not one of those books, but what it is is I think anyone who reads it can make those changes in their own life. They can shut off the television for a day or shut off the Internet for a day and pick up a book. You mentioned jokingly in the, in, in, coming into the segment, you know, if book, you know, bookstores exist. I mean, I used to say you could buy it at Barnes & Noble and Borders, but there's no more Borders. And it doesn't seem to me too many used bookstores anymore. And I think if just people um, look at the common denominator, how um, people have lifted themselves up intellectually over the course of the last 400 years or so, the, the common denominator there is the book. And I think people really got to get back into reading and not so much being into in front of screens whether it's your cell phone or your computer or your television. Well, and moreover, I think it's important to underscore the fact, Daniel, that this is not just for the matter of, of you know, lifting the common denominator and and, and, and uh, you know, sparing the culture from further demise and, and returning once again um, a sense of, of poise and culture and class to a pop culture. Uh, at certain levels, this also gets to the heart of, of the, of the very protection of otherwise the ultimate demise, I think, of our society and our nation. Because if we don't have in stock and trade, at the very least, or at least our, our, our intellectual capabilities, uh, there's not much that we have left. Yeah, and, that, and that's, I think, why Adler was doing the great books of the Western world, because society was being torn asunder, because we no longer had these cultural common denominators. And he said, look, these are the great books that have united us as a culture. Let's get back into them. Even if, and it, 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 you know, when he was on the cover of Time magazine, the subheadline said, should professors commit suicide? And that was in jest, of course, but there was a grain of truth to it in the sense that he was offering education without the middleman, knocking the middleman out and basically saying education is a lifetime responsibility. It's not something you do exclusively in schools. It's something you do over the course of your life. And I think if people look at it from that perspective, um, they may be a little bit more healthy. One final question i got to squeeze in here. You talk in the book about apostate historians. Uh, elaborate on that for a moment, would you, Daniel? Yeah, sure. Will and Ariel Durant. I mean, Will Durant, to me, he was the apostate historian. Everything he did, when he, when he got, when he was in the seminary, and then he decided one day he was an atheist, he got, not only got kicked out of the seminary, or not only to leave the seminary, but he got excommunicated from the Catholic Church. When he, when he became an anarchist, 
Um, he, he was an anarchist teacher. He fell in love with one of his students who was 15 years old, and they got. She was, he was 27. He got he got married at the at the city hall. She went to the marriage ceremony with her roller skates. He was always doing things against the grain. When he was an anarchist, or later a socialist, went to the Soviet Union. Everyone expected him to come back with all these tales of heaven on earth. But instead, he said, "This place is a gigantic prison." <laughs> and so everything that he did in life. He always was, was um, doing the opposite of what was expected of him. And, of course, his marriage ends up by winning jointly a Pulitzer Prize with his wife. They get, they're married for 68 years. You wouldn't expect that out of someone, a teacher who marries a student. Amazing. Daniel, we sure appreciate the time and the insights. Great book, Blue Collar Intellectuals, When the Enlightened and the Everyman Elevated America. Available on the web through Amazon.com, bookstores, if you can find them. And again, Daniel's blog at FlynnFiles.com. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to KFAX.com. That's KFAX.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time around, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never before seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.